Isaiah chapter 9. If you want to turn your copy of Scripture, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity we have to have our minds spend some time concerning the truth of what you have to say about us and about you and your plan to save sinners. We pray, Lord, our time in your word this morning would be fruitful and you would have your way in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I don't know what you look forward to at Christmas. When you think of Christmas time, there are probably things you uh, look forward to. I can think of a few things I look forward to. Uh, I like it when all the people put the, house, the lights on their houses. I think, that's, uh, I think that's fun when people put the lights up. I'm even okay with people who didn't put a lot of effort in. Uh, you know, they just sort of strung a few lights up. Yeah, I, I like that. I, I appreciate the effort uh, to go into that. I like Christmas food. Um, there's a big difference between gluttony and occasional feasting. And uh, Christmas time, it's called occasional feasting. We're celebrating the bounty of the Lord, and we can get back to non-occasional feasting after uh, the New Year's. Um, I like Christmas television specials. Uh, it frustrates me that you can watch them whenever you want. I, I really enjoyed as a kid the fact that you had to know when Charlie Brown Christmas was going to be on, and you had to watch it. I've tried explaining this to my children. You couldn't pause it, you could, and if you missed it, you, it's gone. If you missed Charlie Brown Christmas, you weren't going to see it till next Christmas, and there's no guarantees. You don't know what's going to come. Uh, that Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer one, that little claymation stop action you want, man, that was scary and great all at uh, one time. And then I've discovered something about myself. I've probably shared this with you before, but it's really important for you to know. I love Polar Express. And I realized this year from talking to a number of people that most people hate it. And uh, so I've already watched it. I had to watch it when my family was gone because everybody in my home also hates it. I love that. The hot chocolate song, the whole thing. It's fantastic. I love the Polar Express. That's Tom Hanks. He's a talented guy. So the question is, when you think about what we think about and what we look forward to at Christmas time, what did the people of Israel look forward to when they thought about the coming of the Messiah? What was it that got their hearts beating fast? What made them think with anticipation of the promises that were going to come? What are the things that got the people of Israel excited about the first advent, excited about the coming of the Messiah who is Jesus? How did the people of Israel look forward to the Messiah? And Isaiah chapter 9 is that. Isaiah chapter 9 is for us that description of what would quicken the heart of any person of Israel as they thought about the coming of the Messiah. And with the coming of Jesus, as many wondered whether or not he was the Messiah, they had certain expectations about him because of what they looked forward to, the things that they were excited about. And the primary way I want to sum up what the people of Israel thought about the coming of the Messiah is this from Isaiah chapter 9. It was going to be the dawn of a new day. It was going to be a complete change of everything. This was going to be a completely new way of life when the Messiah came. And so I want to look at just a couple of different verses here in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. We'll read through it as we make our way through the passage. And I want to show you how the people of Israel anticipated the Messiah, who is Jesus, 
and how that should inform how we approach the celebration of the Messiah, who is Jesus. So the first thing about the dawn of a new day, what will happen, according to Isaiah 9, what will happen? This, there will be overwhelming joy and gladness. That was the anticipation. The dawn of a new day. What will happen for Israel? Overwhelming joy and gladness. If you could think of somebody who was lost on an island, and they have managed to scrape together a living for a few weeks or months, and now they've eaten through all the food, and there is no shelter, and they're starting to lose their, their health, and they finally get to that spot where all hope is gone. They have realized they're going to die on this island. And then all of a sudden, in the, the darkest possible moment, the, the greatest moment of despair, a ship comes by and sees them on the island. A ship comes by and identifies and sees them and rescues them off the island. And more than that, not only are they rescued off the island by a ship, but they're rescued onto a luxury cruise liner. And they're given the presidential suite to recover being given all of the best foods and drinks and comforts that a person could imagine. And this is what the people of Israel were anticipating with the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1, 2, and 3. Let me read them. But there will be no gloom for who, her who was in anguish. Her here is Israel. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. We have a description here in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, of a people found in great darkness who suddenly find themselves in the great light. And what we need to understand about how the people of Israel anticipated the Messiah is they were looking forward to a time of such joyful celebration that all the sadness of their past will be completely forgotten. There, what, what is going to happen when the Messiah comes, Isaiah says, is there will be such joy, such gladness, such celebration that no matter how bad it was before, it will be completely forgotten. It will be misremembered as nothing because of the greatness of the celebration and joy. The challenge here for the people of Israel and then for us who celebrate the Messiah today is this. We should hope in this gladness with reckless abandon. That's what Isaiah challenges us to do, is to have such hope in the Messiah that we anticipate with such great confidence a day of deliverance and joy and gladness that we hope in that day with a reckless abandon. Let's look at the verses just briefly. Verse 1. He's talking about Israel. In the former time, he brought contempt into the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Zebulun and Naphtali are two of the tribes of Israel. Remember, there are 12 tribes in Israel. 
Two of them are Zebulun and Naphtali. You know some of the more famous ones, the tribe of Benjamin. King Saul, as well as the Apostle Paul, were of the tribe of Benjamin. Then, of course, you have the tribe of Judah. There's some famous people who were from the tribe of Judah. King David. Have you heard of this guy? King Solomon. All of the kings of the southern uh, kingdom were from the tribe of Judah. Maybe you've heard of the tribe of Levi. All of the priestly uh, duties were accomplished by this tribe. Well, two of the lesser-known tribes are the tribe of Zebulun and Naphtali. Their location geographically is around the Sea of Galilee. That is where they're located. And they're described as a a land that has been uh, burdened with contempt. And he even says here in verse 1, But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land of the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. This place of darkness deep-rooted paganism and idolatry, great mistreatment from the enemies of the people of Israel. This was not a great place to live. This place of torment and fear, Isaiah predicts, in the end, a great light will shine on this land of darkness. This place of Zebulun and Naphtali, this land of paganism and darkness and persecution and suffering, this most oppressed And most evil of places, the light will break through. So let's look at it. Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Now when he, that is Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, Zebulun, Naphtali. He went and lived in, uh, he left Nazareth and he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. Nazareth is just to the uh, west of the Sea of Galilee, and then Capernaum is a relatively short and downhill walk from Nazareth down onto the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of what? Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilees of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So this place of darkness since the time of Isaiah, Jesus goes there and shines the light of the hope of the Messiah into this place of darkness. Did you ever wonder, as you're reading through your New Testament, why Jesus spent so much time around the Sea of Galilee? Because he was bringing the light, the hope of Jesus. And what hope did Jesus bring to the people of Galilee? He brought the hope of forgiveness of sins. He brought the hope of being taken from unrighteousness and separation from God into righteousness and right relationship with God where a person could have life forever with God. So Jesus comes and solves the problem every human faces. Because we've been separated from God in our rebellion, all of us face death. And Jesus says, you no longer have to worry about that. If you will trust me, I will forgive you anything you've ever done wrong. All of your sins will be forgiven. And in me, you will have eternal life. So this is good news. This is light shining in a dark place. 
this deep place of idolatry where there was paganism. So someone would come to Jesus. I don't know how to have right relationship with God. I have been worshiping false deities, sacrificing animals, and maybe even my uh, children to these deities. I have worshiped them in evil and corrupt ways. What should I do? How could I possibly have relationship with God looking at my history of evil? And Jesus would say, I will forgive you all your sin and grant you my righteousness. So then the person would say this, well, that's great, but what happens? I live in Zebulun and Naphtali. We're persecuted and we're going to be killed. And, and Jesus would say, well, guess what? That's not a problem for you anymore. Dying is not your end. That is when you begin a life with God that will last forever. So Jesus brings to this great place of darkness forgiveness for all of their sin, and they had lots of it. Now, you might have lots of sin, too. I'm looking around. I see some, some heavy hitters. And Zebulun and Naphtali, the Galilee, Galilee of the nations, they would say, hold my beer, watch this. They were varsity sinners. And Jesus says, I have come to bring you hope. And then the Romans are going to persecute them. And Jesus said, don't worry about it. I have come to give you eternal life. And so light breaks through. This is the hope that Jesus offers. This is the hope the Messiah offers, the light of the good news of the gospel. Go back to Isaiah chapter 9. Let's look at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So the promise of this light, of Jesus the Messiah, comes when it is needed most to those who need it most. And what's interesting is where Jesus didn't go first. Where didn't he go? Jerusalem. Why didn't he go to Jerusalem? What was in Jerusalem that might matter for a guy who calls himself the Messiah? The temple. That's where all the religious people hang out. That's where all the powerful and influential religious people hang out. That's where some of the political leadership, at least of Israel, would hang out. Well, why didn't he go to Caesarea on the coast where Herod had his capital? Where he could have some political influence. And maybe, maybe he could lead the, the Roman uh, leader to 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 faith in him, and then he could change everything politically for Israel. He didn't do that. Where'd he go? To the backwoods, to the darkness, where he was needed most. To those who needed it most, not to those who might have said they were most deserving. The light was shine, shown in the darkness. Seth looked at it a little bit last week in Luke chapter 1, the song of Zechariah, and I just want to read a couple of verses from it. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 76, Zechariah saying this about his son, John the Baptist. And you, child, John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of his salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Here in verse 79 of Luke chapter 1, Zechariah reveals to us that he's read Isaiah 9 before. To give light to those who sit in darkness and, 
And what did Zechariah say to John the Baptist would be the light that Jesus would bring? It's at the end of verse 77. The forgiveness of their sins. The promise of this light comes to those who need it most, those who need their sins forgiveness. And Jesus is going to bring the light of forgiveness of sins and peace with God. One other verse here, Luke chapter 2, verse 14. This is what the angels had to say to the shepherds. Glory to God in the highest and on, on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. The angels announced to the shepherds that all who are, have God's pleasure, all who experience the warmth of God's familiar gaze will experience peace. Who is it that has God's approval? Anyone who has their sins forgiven. Anyone with their sins forgiven would have the approval of God and would experience peace with God. So the Messiah breaks in where darkness is most needed among those who are most sinful and oppressed, and he shines light into their darkness and says, I will give you right relationship with God, peace with God, approval. Just a quick aside. Uh, Well, I don't know how to ask this politely. Maybe some of us are believers. Are you a believer? It's okay. You can say it out loud. You're not at work. You can say it out loud at work, by the way, too. But anyway, so you're a believer. So this is a quick question. You might not want to answer this one out loud. Have you ever sinned as a believer? Okay. Maybe one or two of us. All of us. Okay, how about this one? Again, I've asked you this question before, but it's worth thinking about. How many of us... um, Your worst sin was after you got saved. Now, I only mention this because a couple of us uh, got saved when you were very young. You didn't know what was available. (laughs) You got saved, and you grew up in the church, and then you went to college, and you swung for the fences. Right? We're talking about the people who couldn't be here this morning. So what do you do with that? You're a Christian. Your worst sin came after your conversion, does God look on you with the warmth of approval and peace? You better figure that out, because either he lied or he told the truth. Either you are forgiven or you are not, and if you are forgiven, it's forgiven of sins past, present, and future, and it is not fun to live as a Christian who had the light but feel like you're walking in the darkness. There's too many of us who do that. If you have the Son, you have righteousness. And if you have righteousness, you have peace with God. And if you have peace with God, what do you have? The warmth of His kind gaze. That's what He has given you. Light shining in the darkness. Those of us who moved to Zebulun and Naphtali after we got saved. His light still shines in our heart. And the Bible even tells tells us this. His kindness leads us to repentance. Suddenly we feel the warmth of a father who approves and we say, maybe I want to live his way and not my way. Maybe my way isn't paying off the way I thought it would. This is what Jesus came to bring, forgiveness and peace with God, and that's what he does bring when we trust him for it. Okay, very quickly, back to Isaiah 9, verse 3, this great 
reversal. Not only did, is God going to rescue his people, the Messiah is going to shine a great light. More than that, look how his rescue was framed. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So the Messiah is going to shine light in darkness, and he's not merely going to rescue. He is saying that when the Messiah shows up, the reversal will be from gloom to unreserved rejoicing in bounty. The, the phrase here, uh, they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. When there was a harvest, what was the celebration that was often held? What would, that, what would people do to celebrate the harvest? You would have a feast. Why would you have a feast? Because there's so much food. When you have a bountiful harvest, all of a sudden the, the, the cupboards are full. And you say, you know what, this is the one time of year where we don't have to worry about if there's going to be enough for tomorrow. Let's have a feast and eat till we explode. We call it Thanksgiving. Right? That's all it is. So what Jesus is saying, we assume that God saves us into meagerness, where he is going to dole out closeness with him, but for the most part as Christians, we think God wants us to know we're still in time out. We're in the corner. We're on probation until he makes sure that, that saving us is going to actually pay off for him. That's not how this Messiah works. He saves us into the bounty of his relationship. Now, he's not talking about merely food and money and this sorts of thing. That is going to finally culminate when the kingdom comes, but he is describing a relational closeness where you feel in connection with God, there is more of him than you could possibly ever exhaust. Look how else he describes it. They are glad as when they divide the spoil. When do you divide the spoil? After you've won a great victory, after a battle, you would go through and strip the dead of their valuables. You see this all throughout the Old Testament. If you conquer a city, you will steal from that city the valuable treasures, usually found in its temple. It's happened to the people of Israel many, many times. Then you would plunder those, that temple and all of those treasures and take them home. The hope would be that the treasures you plundered would far exceed the cost of war, that you would be enriched, that you would become wealthy by having conquered your enemy. And Jesus comes to us as our Messiah and says, I want you to celebrate as though you have conquered the enemy and there is spoil to be gathered. And that's precisely what Jesus does. This is the great reversal. The Messiah comes, shines light in the darkness, provides more than is enough, and gives us victory, the spoils of war. This is the dawn of a new day. What will happen? Overwhelming joy and gladness. Some of you are skeptical or cynical or both. I've got both. I have the spiritual gift of cynicism and skepticism. Pastor Jeff is a fantastic optimist. I wish I could be one. I like to tell Jeff I love his optimism. I'm not an optimist. I'm a pessimist. And I tell people all the time, I'll stop being a pessimist when I stop being right about it. <laughs> right? Then, then I'll fix it. But, you know, it's just a temperament. I know that most of the time I'm just pessimistic. It's the way it is. That bothers you. Get over it. 
I don't know what to tell you. I'm not here to impress you. Some of us are skeptical. Oh, this sounds all very nice. The Messiah will bring bounty, and he's going to be a blessing. But you know what? I look at my relationship with Jesus. I'm not talking about joy and gladness. I'm talking about muddling along. This all sounds very well and good. Okay, we'll see you at heaven. But this is not characterizing my spiritual life, is joy and gladness. What exactly is the Lord going to do? What can we anticipate he will do? And will it be as good? Having relationship with God through Jesus, joy and gladness, will it be as good as what Isaiah is trying to tell us? So let's look at verses 4 and 5, Isaiah 9, verses 4 and 5. Dawn of the new day, why will this happen? Why will we have overwhelming joy and gladness? Because all burdens will be lifted. That's why. Because all burdens will be lifted. Verses 4 and 5. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So what Isaiah is telling us, this is not just merely a party. It is a party. It is a celebration of overwhelming joy and gladness. But it's more than just a party trying to make things good. So at Christmas time, a lot of us have a lot of different Christmas parties. Maybe you have a work Christmas party, and you have a family maybe you get together with, and maybe you have a home group you get together with, or friends you get together with, and you look forward to going to these parties. That's how we often think about parties, though. You go to a party because you want to forget about the real world for a little bit. You're going to go there and have some fun, play some games, hang out with friends, because the whole idea is life is hard enough. I'm going to take an hour or two here and forget about my problems. I'm going to do whatever I might have to do to have enough fun at this party that my problems don't bother me for an hour or two, because they're going to be there for when, when I get done with this little celebration. Isaiah is not talking about that kind of party. He is talking about a celebration that occurs when all of the burdens are gone where you wake up one day and all of the burdens that you carry don't exist anymore. It's that kind of party that Isaiah is describing. A celebration that occurs as the result of all burdens, all fears being removed, and everything that is normally needed for protection is no longer needed. That's what Isaiah is describing. How will we have overwhelming joy and gladness? All burdens will be lifted. Look at verse 4. He's speaking of Israel. The yoke of burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Now, who was Midian? It was an enemy of Israel. They invaded Israel a number of times. You can think of some famous occasions when the Midianites were conquered. You can think of Barak and Deborah and uh, Jael with her skills on a tent peg. If you haven't read that story, oh, it's a good one. She knew how to put a tent up, or at least how to nail a head to the ground. You, Jason, Jason's making me do it. If you don't want to know what that's like, go home, get your tent pegs out, grab a cantaloupe. I know that, and this is how you make the Bible come alive. This is not easy. This woman had some skills, okay? She took care of the Midianites. Another Midianite, moving on, Gideon. Remember Gideon? He conquered the Midianites with a vast army of 300 they blew trumpets, and then everybody killed each other, and then he chased them down, and he, and he slaughtered the Midianites. 
So what uh, the Messiah will do is remove the burdens the way it was for Israel when the Midianites were removed, which was incredible. The Midianites were removed uh, by these heroes. But, they, but he also describes the Midianites as more than just an enemy. The words here he describes are a yoke, a staff for his shoulder. What do you put a yoke on? Beast of burden. What do you put, who's a, what do you put a, a staff on a shoulder for? We're not talking about laying it gently on a shoulder. What are you doing? You're letting somebody know they're out of line. And so a staff is laid across the shoulders to, to, to either make a beast or a person come correct. It's a, a form of punishment. The rod of his oppressor. All of these things are broken as on the day of Midian. Burdens are gone. Discipline is gone. Mistreatment is gone. Why did the Midianites invade the people of Israel? Because they were unfaithful to God and his promises. Because their sin brought a dividing wall of hostility between God and his people. And what the Messiah does is he comes and he breaks down that dividing wall of hostility with his own sacrifice. So the, the rod and the staff comes off of our shoulders and the burden comes off of our shoulders. The yoke comes off of our shoulders. Where does it go? It's got to go somewhere. God is just. All sin must be accounted for. So the, the rod and the staff come off of our shoulders, and where do they go? Onto Jesus' shoulders. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The stripes and the bruises on his back should have been on our back. So the Messiah comes, and he unloads the burden of our sin and the debt of our transgression and the cost of, dis of disciplining us, and he bears it himself. He takes on himself the burden that we should have carried. It makes us recall that night in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is praying, God, not my will, but your be done, but if there's any way that this cup could pass from me. Why is he under such anguish? Because the staff and the yoke and the rod of the oppressor is moving from our shoulders to his. The great thing about Jesus' shoulders, though, is he could take the punishment on himself on the cross and have complete victory over it and be raised from the dead. So what we anticipate in Christ is anything that anyone could call a burden is completely removed. Anything that anyone would call a burden, the Messiah completely removes. Okay, let's look at verse 5. Every boot of the tramping warrior in battered tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This means under the Messiah, all things we used to need for protection, like the warrior, will no longer be needed. The, battle, the, the boot the warrior would wear into battle, he's not going to wear anymore, so he throws it in the fire. The garment that he would wear to give him warmth as well as protection, which is now covered in blood, because that's what happens in battle, is now thrown into the fire because he's never going to need that again, because the Messiah has come. I love how Ezekiel describes it after a great battle. They go throughout the land of Israel collecting all of the weapons. And the Bible says they do not have to burn wood for seven years because they're burning the implements of war for their fuel. And that's what he's describing here. The Messiah comes with such great victory, we don't have to lock our doors anymore. Where do you, how are you going to get into your car without a key fob? You won't need it. You won't have to lock your door. You can leave your door unlocked. Some of you still do that. I don't know where you live. 
He said, I leave my door unlocked because I have a gun. Okay, well, you, know, you won't need the gun either. He's saying when the Messiah accomplishes his purpose, all burdens will be lifted. All fear of future loss is gone. If you are in Christ, what have you gained according to Ephesians chapter 1? You are heir to the kingdom of God, co-heirs with Christ in a kingdom that will never fail. So what could you fear losing in this life? Now, some of us have experienced loss before. We've had our house broken into. That's annoying. They stole some stuff. We got some of it back. That's scary, right? Other, you've experienced other losses, both financial and relational, and they hurt and they sting. But here's the question. When you look at your balance sheet as a believer, what have you lost? You haven't lost anything. You haven't, you haven't lost anything. You have gained the kingdom of God. They say, well, it's still, it feels like I lost. I know, what, I know what it is. I live in the same world you do. But what the, what the Bible is calling us to do is to look at things the way they actually are. No matter how much we lose here, we have not lost because we are heirs to the kingdom of God. And the Messiah says, I bring you this release of this burden. Everything that will be needed for protection will be gone, will no longer be needed. What is the burden for Israel during Jesus' day? What was the great burden of Israel in Jesus' day? It was the Roman oppression. It was mistreatment by the Romans. It was, it was a, a perception that many of the land promises that God had made to the people of Israel had gone unfulfilled. What burden did they miss and they failed to see when the Messiah came? Sin and death. The Roman oppression was serious. The Roman mistreatment was serious. The religious mistreatment was serious. And Jesus came and said, I will save you from sin and I will save you from death. And what did Israel say? Great. We, we, yeah, we'll try to keep our noses clean. We'll try to not sin. But Jesus, we got bigger fish to fry than sin and death. What happens if Jesus came and saved Israel from Rome? What would happen to that whole generation? They'd all be dead. Rome didn't kill everybody. They tried, but they didn't kill everybody. What killed all the people? What has killed all the people always? Sin. That's what's killed all the people. It has killed literally everybody. The mortality rate on this planet is unbelievable. It's almost like this is a dangerous place to live. It seems like no matter how long you live, you die. This, I mean, I'm just stating facts. This is depressing all of a sudden. Well, it's not depressing if you don't care about death. Death is not a problem. Jesus fulfilled Isaiah to the T, but you can see why the people of Israel were so disappointed. He ushered in the times of Isaiah 9 where their final fulfillment would be in the future. The people of Israel didn't want to wait for the future. And the people of Israel wanted their perceived real problems to be dealt with right now. And that's why they were so disappointed with Jesus. How disappointed were they with Jesus? So much so that they killed him. They didn't kill Jesus because he did something wrong. He never did anything wrong. He just did a whole bunch of good. Why'd they kill Jesus? Because they were so disappointed with him. He brought everything except what they actually wanted. Dawn of a new day. 
What will happen? Overwhelming joy and gladness. How will, why will this happen? Because all burdens will be lifted. When are, are, when are our burdens lifted? Immediately. Immediately. Now, I could see some of you. I, I can see the cynics in the room already because we're on the same team. All right, we got it. You say, well, my financial problems haven't been lifted yet. Okay, are you thinking? Are you doing the math? I trusted Jesus. My financial problems have gotten worse. Anyone? Did they? You're not doing your math right. Well, you lost some money. You lost your job. Somebody did you wrong. These things are terrible. Been through it. I know, I've, you know, I wrote the, I've, I've, I've lived the country song like you have. But at the end of the day, what have we lost? Nothing. We have gained eternity. You might have lost some stuff for a few years, maybe a lifetime. I don't know. That's not that long. And Jesus says all the burdens are lifted today unless you want Jesus to fix your stuff for today. Then you and Jesus are going to have a lot of arguments, just like I do with him and just like the people of Israel did. Dawn of a new day. Why will this happen? All burdens will be lifted. Let's look at the last couple of verses. How will this happen? Because Jesus will be born as king. Verses 6 and 7, probably the most famous part of this passage. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Jesus came. He was born. He lived his perfect life. He did a number of fantastic and amazing things. He turned water into wine. He fed 5,000 a couple of times. He healed the blind. He healed the sick. He healed those who couldn't walk. He healed those who were possessed by the devil. He healed those who couldn't talk. He put up with the disciples. Greatest miracle of all time, possibly. He walked on the water. He cast demons into pork, ruining 2,000 perfectly good carriers of bacon. <laughs> he preached to the poor. He never sought power or influence. If you were living at that time and you had read Isaiah chapter 9 and a guy is walking around in the water, turning water into wine, feeding the 5,000, that's food, that's wine, that's overcoming creation. These are all things they anticipated from the Messiah. He's healing the sick. You say, this guy might be the Messiah. Wouldn't you get excited? And they were excited. They were rightfully so. The king has arrived and he is fulfilling everything that Isaiah 9 had to say about him. This celebration and this lifting of burdens will be possible for those of us who are in Christ because Jesus as king will do all of the heavy lifting. He brings joy by removing our burdens. He brings joy by forgiving us of our sin. He brings joy by reigning forever and ever, and his reign will never end. When is the dawn of the new day? It's at the birth of Jesus. For to us, 
a child is born, to us a son is given. The birth of Jesus is the beginning of this day. That's when the light hits the the eastern sky and our, our hearts are filled with warmth at saying the darkness is over. We have been rescued. We have been saved. The time of hope and peace and celebration and joy has begun because the ruler is here and he has raised from the dead and he is reigning. And when will his reign end? It will never end. Who is in charge of planet Earth? Putin. No. Biden. No. Whatever your, your favorite political hack is. No. Whatever your favorite political party is. Absolutely not. Who is ruling this world today? Jesus the King. He is in charge. He has never stopped being in charge, and he is the one who rules over our hearts as our king, and he removes our burdens and calls us in to a time of celebration and hope. He is the ruler as the risen king. He is our counselor. He brings us peace. He gives us forgiveness. The sun is up. The darkness is gone. That's the description of the Christian life in Isaiah chapter 9. The sun is up. The darkness is gone. Look with me over at Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. The angel said to them, talking to the shepherds, the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you, what? Good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, Messiah, the Lord. The the angel here is saying, I think the angel has read Isaiah 9, a baby has been born, the baby is the Messiah, the baby is for all the people, not just Israel, and shepherds, not just religious people. He is a son of David, the Savior. He is the Messiah and Lord of all. So the angel is saying to the shepherds, good news, a new day has dawned. If you've read Isaiah 9, chapter 1, where it says a new day has dawned, has dawned shepherds, it's on. It's happening. It's right now. It, 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 it's not later. It's not next week. It's not next month. It's not next millennia. The baby has been born, and it is the Lord, the Messiah, the King. The angels told the shepherds in Bethlehem, this child is the one from Isaiah chapter 9. The Messiah Messiah is here to bring hope for all who trust him. Go back to verse 7 of Isaiah 9 and we'll be done. Maybe, unless I think it's something else. Jesus' rule is a rule of always increasing government and peace. There will be no end. Then look down halfway through. He will establish and uphold his kingdom with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Two things there. His grace is sufficient for you for two ways in in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. Number one, he will uphold his kingdom with righteousness. Now, I'm looking forward to heaven one day. One of the greatest things will be about heaven is we won't sin and we won't want to. Here, sometimes we, we figure out a way not to sin, but even if we did, we still wanted to. 
Heaven will be fantastic. We won't sin and we won't want to. And so we say, well, he can uphold his kingdom with righteousness because we won't be sinning. When does his kingdom start? It's already happening. How does he uphold a kingdom of righteousness with a bunch of sinning yahoos like us? His grace is sufficient. He upholds a kingdom of righteousness by granting us his righteousness. We don't earn it. So his grace is sufficient even for us. The light has dawned. We don't have to wait for heaven to experience the joy of living as righteous ones. Now, I don't want you to sin any more than you have to, which it'd be great if you'd stop. Sin will kill you. It'll ruin your life. You've tried it, haven't you? This is the truth. But the, the fact is, when we struggle with sin and don't overcome it, we live according to Jesus' righteousness. Now, there's some, another way grace, uh, grace is sufficient for us. Your sin is not the only sin you're dealing with in your life. It turns out you live with other people. And sometimes their sin hurts you. Anybody live with any other sinners? Anybody ever had somebody sin and it leaves a mark? And it's a deep mark and you've thought about it for decades? Now, but look at what the Bible says. He will establish his kingdom with justice. Would you describe Jesus' kingdom in your life as just? I know, now I'm really annoying. It's Christmas time. You're supposed to be happy. It is happy. Here's the great thing about Jesus' grace. There will be not a single injustice that you have experienced that our king will not account for. Not a single thing where you have been wronged that he is not mindful of and he will not address. All injustices that you have been subject to will be made right. His grace is sufficient for the sin you have committed. His grace is also sufficient for the ways in which you have been sinned against. And he has not forgotten the ways in which we have been wronged. Good news and bad news. If the person who has wronged you is not a believer, they will pay for their wrong. That's not good news for them, but it is just. However, if that person is a believer, they will not have to carry that into eternity. Thank the Lord. That means Jesus himself will bear the cost of the injustice you have suffered. Because his kingdom is a kingdom of justice. When you walk across the threshold into glory, you're going to experience a lot. The first thing you're going to experience is this. I love this reaction. Oh, now I see. Now I get it. Okay. And then you can ask all your silly questions about dinosaurs. <laughs> and then you're going to see the reward he has given you, even though the, you lived the way you did. And you're going to say, oh, this is embarrassing, Lord. This is... This is awkward. I, I think you've mislabeled my reward. I don't deserve this. Then you will see the ways in which he has accounted for all the ways you were wronged. And the burden of those wounds will lift off. And you will say, this is a kingdom of justice. This is a kingdom of justice where all wrongs are properly accounted for. Does anybody want to be a part of that kind of kingdom? Anybody want to be a part of a kingdom where all wrongs are handled and all, everything is handled perfectly rightly, where you will look at your judge and your king and say, you nailed it, man. 
That's exactly the kingdom he has ushered in. It's a kingdom of justice and righteousness. And what is glorious about this kingdom is it will never end. The increase will never end. And this will be the joy of our life for all of eternity. And it begins even now. All right, three things. And uh, let's prepare for communion. Why don't you go ahead and get your communion elements out. I need just a drink of water before I eat this cracker. Otherwise, it could get... First thing I want us to think about as you're opening your communion elements is this is a kingdom of hope that's anticipated by faith. And even though I confess to my cynicism and skepticism, in the end, there's no room for cynicism and skepticism in the heart that is hopeful in our king. Christians trust Jesus. And what we have to do with our reckless hope is endeavor to not allow our enthusiasm in the risen king to be tempered in any way. We must recognize our cynicism and our skepticism does not allow us to properly enjoy the the benefits of our relationship with Christ when it tempers our enthusiasm for what Jesus has done to relieve us of our burdens. Our joy is not simply that We have good news that outweighs our bad news. The joy we have in Christ is that he has undone all the bad news, all the sin, all the unfairness. Everything will be undone. As we prepare to worship Christ through communion, one thing you may wonder about is this. You, like many of us, probably have a lot of bad news that you think about in your life. One of the ways we can worship him is to recognize that all of those bad news experiences in our life today will one day be undone. They're going to be undone and made right, and we can anticipate the joy of that day with our king. Last thing, Jesus is king. He's the best king there's ever been and ever will be. Um, Our hope in this particular king is a king that was born in humble circumstances to serve those who don't deserve it, One of the ways we enjoy worship of our king is to act like our king, is to express our love and devotion to Jesus through humble, low service to those he brings into our life. Look with me at Luke 22, uh, or you can listen to me as I read it. This is the Lord at his last supper, and I just want to highlight one thing before we close with communion. Here's what it says in Luke 22, 14 to 20. And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles were with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup. When he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus, when he gave the Last Supper with his disciples, one of the things he highlighted was this. He is going to partake again with us on the day when his kingdom comes in its fullness. So he calls us to remember him, remember his death, Remember his resurrection. Remember the forgiveness that he has given us. But he also reminds us, because 
he, he ate this meal, it says, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So what he says, here's Passover, there's suffering, then there's glory. So you and I come together and we, and we partake again. And we say, okay, we see how it works. There's communion together. Then what? Suffering. Then what? Glory. But in the time of suffering, we can live as those whose Messiah is risen. The burden is lifted. The gladness is there even during times of difficulty. Let me pray a prayer of thanks for the cup and the bread, and then we'll partake together. God, we thank you for the kindness you have shown us in Jesus. Our prayer would be, as we celebrate Christmas together this year, Lord, that you would remind us with all the joy of the festivities that because you have come and a new day has dawned, we can have a life of overwhelming joy and gladness because all of our burdens are lifted by our Messiah because Jesus is our King. We pray, God, that you would, by the strength of your Spirit, fill us with your joy and gladness, even with the weights we still carry, that our hearts would be moved to joy and gladness because we know what we look forward to you in your, in your kingdom. We thank you for the cup that represents Jesus' shed blood, which reminds us that through his work on the cross, we have forgiveness of sin. And we thank you for the bread which reminds us of Jesus' broken body, that he took on himself the punishment we deserved. And we thank you, God, that we look forward to a day where your kingdom will be established for all time, even here. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's eat and drink together.